Before we get started, After the Monuments is proud to thank Team Henry Enterprises for their support of our show. Team Henry Enterprises is a black-owned contracting firm specializing in office, retail, medical, multifamily, and higher education construction of all scopes and sizes. In the wake of the George Floyd protest, Team Henry is the very firm contracted by the city of Richmond to take down the Confederate monuments in Richmond and by many other municipalities to remove other Confederate monuments around Virginia and throughout the Southeast. Learn more about Team Henry and how they can help your community rebuild, renovate, or design at TeamHenryENT.com. I'm Kelly Lemon. And I'm Michael Paul Williams. And welcome to the After the Monuments podcast, where we look at events and news about race in a historical context and see how, too often, history repeats itself. It's our pleasure to have award-winning Times Dispatch reporter <laughs> Sabrina Moreno with us today. Um, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Um Sabrina has just done a deep dive into COVID's impact on Virginia's Latino community. And um, we've been talking about the disproportionate impact yeah. that this virus has had on communities of color. And um, it's been horrific in this community. And um, Sabrina has given us the, the hows and the whys and, and all of that about how that came to happen, the perfect storm of events that that led to this disproportionate toll of sickness and death. Um, why don't you just tell us um, just what were the factors, um, historical and, and current day, that led to this horrible situation among Virginia's Latinos? Yeah, and I, I feel like there's not one specific answer because it's such a cannonball of um, of things. And I looked at specifically 2000 to 2020. Um, it was interesting hearing from BDH officials what an impact, um, you know, 9-11 and also the financial crisis had. Um, and then also hear from immigrants who have been, you know, either stateside or in Richmond for the past 20 years that just talk about the discrimination post 9-11. Um, and that's not in story one, but I think so much of that informed how this has just been going on for so long and, and that um, and how immigration law being s strengthened to the point that it has been um, and just the role that that can play in health. Um, that was an anti-immigration rhetoric. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think um, the, it, it was extremely interesting just hearing from public health officials acknowledge the census count. Um, I, I did not think of that beautifully by myself. It was a lot of people uh, mentioning, you know, being undercounted and and that, you know, being tied to government workers and that fear and, you know, and Shantani Jackson, who's a community health worker um, who was at Southwood, you know, she mentioned that even if I were to show up, you know, with the census worker, um, you know, I knew that they trusted me, they'd still be like, okay, that's La Migra, like that's ICE, you know, and, um, and that, that connection. And so it was interesting to hear how over the years, um, these policies that maybe you initially don't think have anything to do with health or, um, you know, the health of someone, um, how tied, how, how inextricably tied that is. And, and then you kind of fall into, you know, what, um, what jobs are available, um, what jobs are, um, what jobs are available that are offering any sort of health insurance. And the reality is, is that it's not. And so seeing that pattern and just that buildup of, um, you have that, these overlapping massive crises that are happening, then you have um, the role that work plays. And then 
work influences your, you know, it's kind of like education influences work, work influences your income, which influences where you live. Um, and then you just cannonball. Um, and something that I'll be talking about a little bit more in the upcoming stories is just how, um, how aware they are about how, the, you know, and, and I mean, Southwood and folks in Southwood, how they're very aware of the segregation aspect of it um, and being isolated to this, um, to this neighborhood that is kind of cut off from a lot of, a lot of health services, um, a lot of uh, like access to groceries and things like that. And then not having transportation and the bus lines, you know, to the grocery store, it takes three hours and sometimes it, you know, so all of these things that you don't think about, um, yeah, they just, they just all come together and, and seeing it documented, um, and maybe not explicitly, not explicitly saying, you know, this is going to lead to this, but just so many public documents just saying like, this is a risk. Um, and seeing that there are people that those reports were reported to. And so, and it just becomes this massive web of people who, who know all of these, all of these links. Um, For those that haven't read the article um, that don't live in Richmond, Southwood is the largest Latino um, community within Richmond or Central Virginia, how how vast? So in Richmond, it's the largest concentration um, of Latinos in the city. Um, and it's a predominantly um, working class immigrant neighborhood. Um, once you get into Chesterfield, you know, along Route 1, um, that has a pretty high concentration of Latinos. But in the region, it also had one of the highest just um, um, increases, like in the past 10 years, in the past 20 years, um, and so, yeah, and that's also just where when you look at maps um, from local health districts that have um, that have just put out this data, it's this overlap of um, really high COVID case counts and just throughout the pandemic. And it's just concentrated in its census tract. And Southwood's census tract is um, almost 50 percent Hispanic. And that's the largest of of any place in um, in the city. Yeah. And so what we have kind of the, the subtext here is we, uh, we have an exploding population in Virginia. That isn't <laughs> that's invisible, it, it seems, when it comes to investment in state policy and 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 not acknowledged in a way that put the position, the state in a position to provide proper services, health care services. Yeah, and I and I think all of these other um all of these other policies that go into that, um you know, it's, a, I mean, the first Latina that was in the General Assembly, you know, was Delia Guzman, you know, Hala Ayala, which you know, that's, that was 2017, 2018. Um, you know, so that yeah. wasn't that long ago. And, so a lack um, of political <laughs> representation. Yeah. And yeah, and I, and I think um, that cannonballs into so much yeah. more because if you, you look like <clears throat> Delegate Guzman has proposed paid sick leave bills, um, you know, Delegate Tran has proposed language access bills. Um, and I think something that is worth noting is that this has been a bipartisan effort, right? I mean, this is spanning, um, and this is just from what, from what I looked into, you know, spanning about five, six, um, you know, administrations, governors, um, and like points in which it was predominantly Republican. And then we also had this period during the pandemic where um, it was predominantly Democrats. Um, both sides were shutting it down. So I think, um, that's that's also been interesting to just see, because I think sometimes um, it's it's easy to be like, oh, Republicans are the ones that are, you know, anti public health measures and Democrats are pro-immigrant. Um, 
But to hear Southwood residents, they just lump them all. <laughs> like it's, a, it's just like they, they, they see what they're not doing. And I, and I think um, that's something I loved that I found through this project, because I think it's very easy to think of, you know, working class immigrants as if they're not empowered, as if they don't know what's happening. And, and it goes back to just that stereotype that, you know, we're stupid. We're, you know, we're quote unquote illegal and, and all of these stereotypes, which, which many in Southwood are very aware of. Um, and it's just the complete opposite. And I think, and I, I wish, I wish I could just like post all the interviews from them. And so, so where does that leave? You know, you've been um, neglected. You know, the state has failed to treat you as a, as, as it should, it's resident. How, where does that leave them emotionally? Where, when you did your interviews, how did you find them, their emotional state? Uh, was there anger? What, what did you sense just doing your interviews and talking to that community? Yeah. And, and I do, I do want to preface with that. This is um, even the people who I spoke to, which was about uh, 10 to 15 South of residents specifically for this. Um, and some overlapped with a piece I did on, on housing within that neighborhood. Um, so it's, it's, that's a small chunk, but um, cause it's about 1300 units and that's thousands of families. But um, from what I have seen, they kind of um, the way that they say it is like, um, and a lot of local community organizations have mentioned this too, where, where they're like, I can only see my bubble right now because that's where I live. And that's like my existence. Um, and I think they're, they're, they're not, I'm trying to think back on this. It's really, I've seen more people be empowered in these past few months, which has been really incredible. And, you know, I spoke, um, I just came from Southwood and, and I asked one of, um, one of the residents, you know, you know, politicians are are likely going to be reading these stories. Like, what would you want to tell them? And instinctively, she was just like that, um, that a better world is possible mm-hmm. and we deserve to see it. And, um, and, you know, she said maybe one or three of us, maybe they'll look, maybe they'll overlook us, but then, but it like, it, but they can't ignore all of us. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember just being like, yes, <laughs> like, and, um, because that's that. And, and that's been really cool to see, um, to see a lot of Southwood residents feel empowered to, to, to say that. Um, but I think they, I think there's a lot of grief. Um, I think there's a lot of um, this feeling of like, everyone has kind of moved on, but how do you move on? Mm. Um well, also just having to, right? Like you have to keep working. You have to keep, um, you know, figuring out your rent so you don't get evicted. You're figuring out um, just just so many things to just keep you alive um, and to just keep going. And I, I think a lot of them mentioned over the past two years of, of speaking to them is just that, like, if, if you stop to think about it, then it's, you know, like they can't kind of thing. Um, yeah. In... in- just in reading your piece, um, one thing that kind of struck me as a chilling kind of um, precursor was how H1N1 had this disproportionately heavy toll on Black and Latino people in Virginia, but it 
what 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 was learned from that? I mean, how did the state react, it, it, if at all? I mean, it's like there was this warning that occurred years before that was not heeded. Um, why didn't that happen? I I wish I had a better answer. I I I really do because um, and and something that. I did want to say that I hope comes across in this series and hopefully more in the next two parts is, um, you know, there were so many workers within VDH trying. Um, and I, I don't want the series to come across as if no one was ever doing anything um, because I spoke to so many people who were trying for years, you know, and I think through the budget request, um, I felt like that was one way of capturing it. Um just the constant being like, if we do not get this funding, we're going to lose core public health services. Um, we're going to not be able to, um, you know, do these screenings for, for new refugees and, um, and just the, the, the breadth of things that BDH is responsible for, um, like federally required programs that they, they have to provide. Um, a lot of that happens behind the scenes and, and that's like a common saying um, apparently among public health is, is that, you know, um, I'm going to butcher it, but it's essentially like when, when, um, you know, when they're doing the work behind the scenes that there's not this crisis, um, it's like, you know, no one's really thinking about public health. Um, and so they're not thinking about how to help them in those times of there not being a crisis, but then a crisis hits. And then all of a sudden, like the health department has to fix it. And, why no? I mean, where's the preventative work yeah. that could happen in those gaps when there isn't a, a crisis, I guess, is yeah, the and obvious I, and, and the public health historian from Columbia who I spoke to um, really brought it home because I felt like a lot of interviews were saying this and, and, and I didn't piece it together until he said it. But um, he essentially was like, you know, prevention is not you know, a sexy thing for a legislator to be telling their constituents that they're putting their taxpayer dollars for, right? Like, it's like you're preventing something that you don't even know if it's going to exist. Um, Mm. But then it goes back to that. How often do we really talk about public health and what public health is, right? And so, and, and, um, and how are we expecting our legislators to just know what public health is and then to fight for public health when it's this thing that can be very invisible unless you're intentionally looking at it and intentionally in it. Um, but it's also an in, just in America, in the United States, an inherently inequitable system on so many levels that it's destined to produce unequal outcomes, right? And to, and to also just think that there's going to be no crisis whatsoever. Um, I, like, it's just it, that's, like that's anti-historical. Mm-hmm. That's ahistorical. Yeah. That's never <laughs> that's never happened. I mean, you, you can't count on that. Right. And, and there's also been like a really common sentiment, um, you know, in my in my interviews with with folks within VDH, um, where a lot of them had just fear of like, what happens when we're, you know, not front page news anymore? Like, will people just stop caring about public health? And um, and I um, I don't think I'm out of bounds saying this. I feel like I, I, I heard so much pain in a lot of these interviews. Um, and I think that's a side that like, you know, we don't see because even now that they're front page news. Um, so many of the workers who are doing this work are behind the scenes. And, um, and you know, that like I, I had folks talk to me about, you know, it's like you're putting in these like hundred plus hour work weeks. You're trying so hard. You're doing everything that you can. And then every single morning you just wake up and the death toll is higher and higher and higher. And 
you know, and, and I'm thinking of, um, you know, Amy Popovich right now, who is currently the nurse manager for Richmond and Henrico's health districts. And, you know, she was there back in 2009 and, you know, um, her along with Dr. Avula and Margot Webb and, um, you know, they really pushed these resource centers in public housing. Um, and there's this story that, that she told me that, that I think of like all the time, um, you know, there's this housing advocate in, um, in Richmond, Marilyn Olds. And, um, you know, she, so Amy showed up and told her what she wanted to do. And Marilyn Olds essentially was like, um, I'm not going to let you in here unless you can promise me that you're going to be here at least three years, mm. at least five years. And Amy was telling me, you know, I instinctively said, yes, there was no funding for it. There was no guarantee that there would be funding for it. And I, and, but I, and she fought so hard for that. And, and I think that's also the thing that's really tough that you don't see. Um, and it's like fighting for funding and especially for something that deals with racism and, and especially in 2009, 2010, talking about how racism is a public health threat. It's not popular among funders and, you know, and, and speaking to folks from um, who did research um, on Latino communities in the late 2000s, they were just like, no one wanted to fund this. Um, and so I think that's, that's the behind the scenes tension that, that is really unfortunate. But we, we're, it's, it's interesting to hear you frame it that way. This topic today is resistance to public health. And I've been thinking of it because of the news in terms of people screaming about the vaccine and, and truckers driving around the beltway protesting and, and a Florida governor shaming college students into taking off their masks and, 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 and just all of that sort of resistance. You know, just hearing you frame it that way, there's resistance on the policy level. There's resistance on the funding level. There's resistance on the political level among people who could make decisions to provide sustenance for public health. So and it kind of goes back to your point of but there's not enough people that look like the people that need to be served to understand Mm. to make those changes. And and you. you, Yes. And you also touched on something where. um, Um. Oh, I just, I just lost it. It's because it's that. Um, did you repeat what you had said? You were talking about how. Oh, you know. Um, yes, it's representation, and it's also the fact that um, these policies, when we, when we're talking about them, it's oftentimes mentioned who would be among the most benefited. Um, and I. And when you say that the kiss leave, of death. Right? Like, <laughs> I mean, I think the best way to frame this, uh, one of the most the fascinating comments that I've received over the past few days um, in response to this project was that um, they would have absolutely loved it um, if I hadn't just made it about race or ethnicity, if I hadn't made it about Latinos. And it's like VDH, like VDH being underfunded is going to impact everyone. And, and that is very true. Um but but that was interesting how they framed it. I would have loved this if you had just not talked about race ethnicity. And we're talking about your story in and general. my stories. Okay. And I think that goes to highlight how like so many of these um, topics that we're talking about. You know, when we're talking about access to healthcare, when we're talking about paid leave, like that is going to impact Black and Latino people. That's going to impact disabled people, immunocompromised people. People will cut their nose off mm-hmm. to spite their face if they think it's a policy that will benefit people of color or, or the poor or whatever. And this is, we're talking about health. 
This is the sickness. This is the sickness of America that people who would benefit from these policies reject them because they feel like someone else who doesn't look like them will benefit. Mm. That's it. it, It's 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 utterly destructive and and, and it helps contribute to the situation morass right now. And and maybe um, maybe this part will will be cut. But I I also really we don't, we I hope don't, not. Don't, yeah, I, I hope not. Yeah, I hope not. But see, we I as you were speaking, I, I immediately think of a parallel that we're seeing right now. Um, you know, I I was I've been told a lot over the past two years. You know, change doesn't happen overnight. You know, policy is slow. Um, but then. Um, it's we've seen a bipartisan federal shift to welcome Ukrainian refugees and open up all of our resources, um, including health care. And I cannot remember a, a time that that has happened elsewhere, even when we're talking Did about that Af- with the Syrians, even when we're talking about <laughs> Afghanistan, like it's just like like the there's a really big lack of language access um, in, in that realm. And so I just and, and so it's like we we've seen like massive, a massive federal shift in, in the span of weeks. And so I really just refuse to believe that there's, I, I, that there's not a better world that exists out there, you know? And I, and, and, and I, it comes down to relatability. Yeah. Does it not? And, and how do you, how do you do that when, um, when they don't, I mean, I mean yeah. empathy, yeah. empathy and relatability are, I think they're very much related and people, I mean, people feel things when they see, they feel a level of horror when they see Ukrainians being bombed that they did not feel perhaps because the microphone wasn't as loud and the cameras weren't there when say Syrians are bombed or, or people in Afghanistan are bombed or, or you could name any spot on the planet. Yeah, Venezuelans have been deported yeah. back to Colombia to the you know, so it's yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring a little bit of positivity in here, just a little oh, why bit. Would because, you do that? I know. I, just just because I gotta <laughs> shake the table. Um you talked about empowerment though. Mm. Um and even and I and and I think you stated it too, um, in a in a previous article, just that the Latino community took control. They they made sure that they were providing the resources to themselves. It was almost like they protected the village and was like, okay, they're not going to help us, so we have to figure out how to help ourselves. Can you talk a little bit about that at all? Yeah, I really love this question because I think, um, and something I think about a lot, when we talk about issues facing communities, um, it's very easy to slip into that community being defined by their trauma or what happened to them. Um, and, and, you know, I, I've been called like an advocate before for this, but I'm like, I literally just saw it. Like I, I, it was, it honestly was really beautiful. Like I, I, I saw, you know, people in Southwood, you know, their, their apartment Wi-Fi got so finicky that their kid couldn't, you know, do their virtual learning. Um, and so then people were inviting, um, you know, those kids to, to, do that virtual learning in their house because their Wi-Fi was fine. You know, when someone lost their job, they'd be bringing over trays of food. Like, and it wasn't like people asked. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, um, and, and I always say that a really big reason that I wanted to, to cover Latino communities is like, I grew up in Miami. Like, it's like, it's, it's a 50 to 80% chance that you run into a Latino mm-hmm. wherever you go. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I've seen that and I've seen that community 
of, of care. That is just like, that. that's just how we, we are. And I saw that play out in the pandemic. And does that mean that every single person in Southwood was like that? No, but like, is, is any single person in every single neighborhood the same way? And, um, but, but they're still building on that and they're still, um, and I think, um, Elena Camacho and, um, and Claudia, um, Arevalo, like with new Virginia majority were huge in this Yomara and Shantini, um, Shantini Jackson, Yomara Vidal at, um, you know, at the Southwood clinic, which is part of EDH. Um, like I, I've heard endless conversations of how they talk to folks there and none of it is this, I'm coming in to save you. I'm coming in to help you. It's all, you have all the resources. Like you have love here. You like you, like it, it's so much from a, 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 an empowerment lens. I've seen it with kids. Like, um, I mean, they're badasses. Like yeah. I think, and, and, um, and I think there's also been such an incredible network of community organizations and, um, you know, places that rose up because, um, which I think is a positive when a lot of philanthropic organizations, um, when the disparities became so in your face that you could not look away, um, there was a lot of philanthropic organizations that kind of shifted and then, you know, gave money to places like Waymakers Foundation, Casa La Salud, which are two local, um, you know, Latino-led community organizations that really, you know, were all about you know, we can combat misinformation by bringing information to people. You know, they had vaccine clinics, they, everyone speaks Spanish and it feels very, um, very intentional. You know, like you would go to a vaccine clinic at Casa de la Salud, there'd be diapers there. They'd be grocery bags, you know, like, um, because they were talking about what they needed and they were meeting people where they are. Um, that couldn't have happened with, with additional funding. Um, and so, and community organizations really rallied around, um, around Latino communities. The issue is just that, you know, they can't do everything. And that's the, that's the reality. Positive end. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. No, um, your, your work right now, it's, it's, you can find it right now at richmond.com. Um, however, this is a series that you're writing. Um, what should we expect in these next ones? If you can share anything. Oh, I'm happy to. Okay. Um, so the, the way that I had set it up in my head was like past, present and future. Um, the reason that the first story, which is technically the past, mentions the pandemic is because my editor and I both realized, oh, my gosh, the pandemic is also in the past. Like we've lived two years of it, um, which is why it includes that. Um, but then story two is the pandemic response. Um, and the goal is to just capture just the loss Um and so you're going to meet, um, you know, this incredible woman, her name is Maria Fuentes. And, um, you know, she, she lost her husband in the first few months of the pandemic and, um, and just the, it's, it feels like two realities, you know, and, and it's about to be two years and, um, you know, and she, she sometimes feels like she's in this limbo of like, you know, people are moving on, but like, I still see that empty seat at my dinner table. You know, that classic saying it, it has been, um, you know, she's invited us into her home. And I literally saw that, like literally saw her eating breakfast and she was by herself, you know, and, and in two years ago, she wouldn't have been. Um, and, you know, we're here we are. And so I think that it's just capturing the loss, but also just the, the dysfunction and the delays um, that led to all of it, you know, and, and, 
And I hope to also just really show that, you know, did the Virginia Department of Health have its faults? Yes. But I mean, I think I, these are also other interviews that I really wish people could hear where they're just talking about, you know, dealing with, um, you know, test results were coming in. They were going through fax machines. They were paper-based, like they were manually counting them. Like they didn't have an electronic health record system after almost a decade of putting in budget requests for them. Um, like actually in the 2020, 2020 general assembly session, they put in a budget request for an electronic health record system saying that they did not have the capacity, um, to be, you know, pulling in so much data, so much patient data. Um, and it was, it did not go through like, and, and so I think it's, the term facts. Yeah. 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 And it, I mean, imagine just manually counting them. Not every local health district had, um, broadband access. Not every building had Wi-Fi. Like in, and that's, that's the other issue with VDH and a lot of public health departments across the country. They all operate differently, but the Virginia Department of Health has a central office and then 35 health districts. Um, and when we're talking about addressing disparities, um, you know, it looks very different across every single health district, you know, and addressing that can be challenging, especially when every health district is not starting off the same. I don't, I just don't know. I mean, the governor right now is talking about giving, you know, give the surplus back to the people. I think that's going to be like maybe an editorial today for all I know. How can we talk about giving any, with all these needs, I mean, if, if the, the health department needs all this investment, how can we, do we have the luxury to be giving any money back when there are all these just expansive needs um, to address a crisis and to prevent it from happening again in the future? And I, and I think that's what's also challenging is that there are people who do not think that we're in a crisis right now. Um, you know, and I, and that's been, that's been really, (laughs) I mean, I mean, I, a lot of, um, um, the amount of, I mean, now it's something that I just mute in my inbox, but like, I, I still get COVID as a hoax. Um, um, I constantly get told that I'm manipulating data that the Virginia part of the Virginia department of health is making this up. And, um, and I've heard that for the past two years consistently, um, it's ramping back up again. And, and I think that's the thing is just people, there really are people who don't think yeah. that we're in a crisis. And I, and, and yeah, also, I wanted to get into that. How yeah. is, since the, our topic at hand, how is the politics, the politic, the rampant politics of it all just kind of played into this sort of dysfunction. It's hurting. It, 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 it creates situations like this. Uh, the undermining of public health officials, um, you know, and, and I'm speaking as someone who saw this from the outside and, and just talking with with workers within VDH um, and also speaking to, um, you know, data experts at the University of Virginia's Biocomplexity Institute, which helped advise the Virginia Department of Health. Um, I mean, these are people who've been doing infectious disease modeling and and are, are literal scientists have been doing this for 20 plus years. And um that was also a very grueling interview because the amount of times that they're just like, man, I, I just hope that they believe us. I, I just hope that they listen. I just hope that like, um, because they've spent two years being told that they're lying, that they're frauds. And, um, and 
And in, in, in speaking of H1N1, um, something that Senator Tim Kaine said, um, you know, he's a state senator here in Virginia, uh, well, state senator of Virginia. Um, he said that a really big shift of what he noticed, um, he was governor of Virginia at the time during H1N1. He said the, politici- the politicization that we're seeing now, he did not experience. He, he you know, when he was governor during H1N1, he was like, um, he was like, Sabrina, I was on the phone with Republican legislators, Republican governors all the time. There was not a single person doubting science, you know, and like, did, did it look differently than, than what we're experiencing now? Yes. But, um, and, and, you know, speaking to public health historians being like the way that we are seeing this just massive undermining of, of, of public health officials and scientists and public health experts, um, is something that has not been seen to this magnitude um, in our lifetimes. And so I, and, you know, before our lifetimes, I mean, it probably was fine for someone to just do something that is very illegal now to someone who's in public health. So like when we're comparing those two things, I feel like they're not very comparable. Um, But yeah, and, and, and it's, I don't have a great answer on how we, how we convince folks. Um, And I think, I've definitely found that the second that we do mention race or ethnicity, when we mention disability, when we mention, um, you know, people who have been among the most vulnerable, um, I mean, I still get my inbox being filled with people being like, well, they deserve it. It's their fault. And, and the reality is that the people who are in power are often not the folks who are being the most affected by this, um, by this pandemic. And that's where we end right there, because that is the, the point to which this podcast is about. It is about how we are still dealing with this and how we will continue to deal with this as we move forward if things don't change. Sabrina, thank you. Thank you so for much. For coming Thanks, on Sabrina. this podcast. Do not forget to check out Michael Paul and Sabrina's work as you subscribe to Richmond.com. This is After the Monuments, a real talk about race with Michael Paul Williams and Kelly Lemon. After the Monuments is a Virginia Video Network production and produced by Matt Pacilli, Michael Paul Williams, and me, Kelly Lemon. Technical direction and editing from Bill Barksdale. Executive production from Paul Farrell, Diane Salvatore, and Paige Mudd. Will Royer provides studio support. Our artwork is by Krishna Mathis. I'm Kelly Lemon, and we'll see you next week on After the Monuments.